You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to the Prehistories Podcast with me, Kim Bidolph. I hope you've been listening into our last few episodes and found them interesting. Today's should be brilliant. I'm very excited about it. Now, if you're new to the Prehistories podcast, um, the the aim of it is to see how fiction can breathe life into stony, dead pasts that words never touched before. We're talking about prehistory before the written record, and yet we've got so much rich uh, fiction written about it over in in the last 30, 40 years, um, and that it, it's been bringing it to life. I particularly like it because it's <clears throat> it's unlike the academic um, articles that you have to read in the journals to keep track of everything. Um, And someone else has done all that research for me and made it into a story that's readable. I think it's fantastic (laughs) uh, from my point of view. And quite a lot of these periods in the past that weren't my specialisms at university, I have learnt about through these books. Now today, we're going to be talking about a fabulous book called The Gathering Night, or I'm not sure where to put the emphasis in that. The Gathering Night by Margaret Elphinstone. Um, And it's set in the Mesolithic of Scotland. Now, if you remember, quite a few episodes ago, we did Wolf Brother by Michelle Paver. And I said that was set in the Mesolithic of Scotland too, but it's not. It's Norway. So don't worry, we're not overlapping. It's fine. Um, I have two very distinguished Mesolithic experts with me to talk about this book. I've got Caroline Wickham-Jones, who's lately from the University of Aberdeen, but now freelance, um, and she is a specialist in the uh, post-Ice Age settlement of Scotland, and Spencer Carter, the founder of Time Vista Archaeology, um, an expert in lithics, especially if they're miso ones. Um, He's otherwise known to many as Microburin, by the way. You might recognise that name. So hello, you two. Hello. Thank you very much for joining me today. Um, Caroline, I wanted to ask you, first of all, you've got um, a particularly um, interesting link to this book, haven't you? Yes. Well, actually, I don't know if you spotted the link because through this book, I managed to achieve, well, I was going to say one of my life's ambitions, except that I never even aspired to having it as my ambition. But did you notice the dedication in the book? Because it's actually dedicated to me. And before the book was even a twinkle in anyone's eye, I had been reading books by Margaret Elphinstone, the author, and I always thought they were fabulous. So you can imagine how I felt when she came and asked me uh, whether I would be prepared to, I think originally she just said something like, answer a few questions about the Mesolithic because she was going to write a novel set in Mesolithic Scotland. And out of that grew a great friendship. And in fact, Margaret spent she more or less moved in with me for periods of the time and read lots of books. And it was great because, she, of course, she asked, asked lots of questions I couldn't answer. So she got me thinking as well. And hopefully people who read the novel can see the fruit of, um, well, really, you know, all her hard work and what became for me, a, as I say, you know, a, a nice fun year of friendship and discussion. 
Yeah, I, I mean, you can see so much work has gone into it. It's really brought it to life. I like what you say about how you, she made you look up things that you didn't know because there's so much. She's really brought the that period to life with with real characters and and a very um, a lifelike society, really a lifelike culture that is is not that kind of. Um, bare time period where people just didn't have anything other than survival. There, there's so much richness there that um, it, that a lot of archaeologists don't actually think about because they're they're focused on the lithics, aren't they, Spencer? <laughs> oh, I don't know, Kim. Actually, I have a I, can, I, I have a cheeky question for Caroline. Do you, Caroline, identify with any particular character? <laughs> no, I don't think so. And Margaret did say that she always, you know, gets people thinking they're being written into books as, you know, or wondering whether she's sort of taking them over as a character and things. No, I, I've never kind of thought about that. But she definitely really pushed my my academic thinking in a way that I just hadn't anticipated at all because, of course, as an archaeologist, I mean, as, as you say, Kim, we only have to really think about and write about the, the things that we find. We very rarely think about the bits in between. And Margaret would ask me questions like, what would they have had for breakfast? And, mm. you know, I've never concerned myself with Mesolithic breakfasts before or anything, mm. sort of the cornflakes of prehistory, I always like to, to call it. But, um, <laughs> and, you know, suddenly I was having to, to think about that and, you know, to yeah. work out what they might have had for breakfast. And you know, there's various ways that you can go about addressing those sort of problems. But it was great because I'd just never done that before. So, I mean, what with the the kind of evidence that we have from the Mesolithic, then what kind of stuff do we find when we dig Mesolithic sites, Spencer? Well, you uh, you mentioned um, some of the evidence, the majority of the evidence, which is um, it excites people like me, but it can be a frustration. The most durable evidence from uh, the Mesolithic uh, are stone tools, and actually not just stone tools; it's the whole chain from. Um, we're talking here about flint and chert and in Scotland some other stones as well that are easily worked. It's not just the finished tools that we see moving around the landscape as it were, but it's, it's uh, the debitage. It's all the, uh, the waste material um, from when you find a pebble wherever you find it, for example, on the beach. Right the way through to you don't want to carry a big boulder around, you start working it and testing it. Um, and then at various points in the landscape, depending on what you need and what you do, you make a mess. And we archaeologists tend to find those messes. Mm. So the lithic record is the most durable. However, we have, uh, not just in the United Kingdom, uh, but in Europe as well, our friends in Germany, Denmark, Scandinavia, uh, Netherlands are best examples. Um, we have special places where organic material survives. The organic material uh, that survive in places where there was human activity at a microscopic, at a macroscopic, as in what I can see, but at a microscopic level, if the preservation is really good, can fill out substantial parts of the story that Margaret has woven together extremely well in the book itself. Um, in the, we, we can work from the broader environment. We can look at uh, what the landscape itself was doing, the vegetation, the fauna, the flora, the animals, the fish, what was happening there through, we're talking here about a 6,000 year period and the, the, the landscape is changing, the climate is constantly in flux. 
We have events that we'll come to a little bit later that we can find in the record. So we can look at what the landscape looked like, uh, mostly natural forest. Uh, we can look, for example, at, this is still a little tentative, but we have a, a pattern now that shows later in the Mesolithic period, people were actually managing that landscape for various reasons. And again, maybe we can come back to that a little bit later. But we can start also looking at um, the plants and the animals, not just those that were available, but what people were actually exploiting, what they were using in their daily lives. And not just for food and sustenance. You know, we can look at historic records. We can look at current hunter-gatherers for the complexity of what would be out there. We can look at the archaeological record. Inevitably, we have gaps. And we can't know that people did predictable things all the time. But actually, we have a lot more evidence than sometimes we take for granted. Mm, absolutely. And I um, thank you for bringing up the, um, the point that we're talking about hunter-gatherers. Um, this podcast is not just aimed at archaeologists. So sometimes we do have to explain things like the Mesolithic just in itself. Um, Caroline, could you explain what, what was the Mesolithic, what was Mesolithic life like? In a nutshell, actually, that's very apt. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, in a hazel yeah, nutshell. We're talking about the people who um, moved in to the UK, really, I suppose, or, you know, they were there all the time, but after the last great ice age. And so when I was a student, we were kind of taught that people had gone south to the Riviera or somewhere where it was nice and warm during the Ice Age and then they all came back. Um, <laughs> we now know that that's not the case and that because um, Britain was surrounded by a large landmass, the landmass that today we would call Doggerland, which occupies the North Sea, what we know as water but would have been dry land then yeah. it's very likely that there were people living out there and um so when the uk or the northern uk was covered in ice there were people around and about and probably people making use of the the uk ice hunters and things yeah. but so, so these people they're not farmers they're not making any permanent mark on the the landscape so they're not building great stone circles or anything of the sort of thing that we might associate with archaeology uh, they're hunters they're fishers um, they're gatherers they move through and around the landscape drawing what they need from the landscape with a very sophisticated knowledge of that landscape and a, a way of using it probably fairly low population densities ranging over territories that uh, may in fact be quite wide, um, a very kind of fluid, it's a very different sort of society to the society that we know and love today. So you wouldn't necessarily be living with the same group all the time. I mean, you would have your essential family, but at sometimes you might find that your group gets bigger as um, related people come together, perhaps in times of plenty. And then at other times, um, it may be that you even, you know, the sort of granny and the kids stay together and um, other people go off to other parts to do other things, collect different types of food and resources, then coming back together again. So it's not just a, a fluid use of landscape, but it's also a fluid use of society, if you like. Yeah. And really, uh, um, much of what their, their goods are designed to be portable, and that's one reason we don't find 
so much today because, of course, it is, as Spencer said, it's all, um, or a lot of it is organic. Mm. And so in the acid soils that we have, particularly in the northern half of the British Isles, material dissolves away very quickly. So when we come to excavate the sites, yes, we tend to find, you know, maybe discolorations, charcoal, rings of stones alongside the um, stone tools and things. But the stone tools were only a small part of life. And in many cases, they're actually using the stone tools to make other things out of wood or antler or bone. In fact, if I could just add quickly there, my, my, my very personal thought, a few other people have said this, um, we talk about the Stone Age, we talk about almost yeah. a million years from, from our point of view uh, of stone tools being dominant uh, until the coming of metals and, and bronze. Um, we talk about the Stone Age because that's the most durable evidence, yeah. even though we've touched on the fact that some uh, organic materials survive. My preference, especially when we look at some of those special sites where a lot more uh, survives, we should be talking about the Mesolithic as the Bone Age. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, uh, there are a couple of very famous sites, one in uh, North Yorkshire uh, known as Starkar, where the preservation um, is amazing because of the of the particular soil and the waterlogging that it's uh, has been in. And yet, if you um, it's, uh, because Starkar's on the edge of Lake Flixton, what was Lake Flixton, it's, um, uh, it's still all got a wonderful preservation of loads of bone, loads of wood, the pollen kind of evidence that you were talking about, Spencer, before, and all sorts of other materials. Um, and yet you go up the hill slightly, up the slope away from where the lake was, and you've got the dryland archaeology where all you get are a couple of bits of, of uh, scrappy flints, or quite nice flints. Um, steady. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry. No, I do love flint. I love flint. I don't know why I'm being so rude about it. Um, well, actually, the, the other the other interesting aspect we talk about Star Car. We can maybe um, again a little bit later. Um, we have maybe a paucity of such sites in the UK, but we were joined to continental Europe, so I think we can look at a few examples there there as well. Exactly. I mean, um, it, there was no such thing as Britain, was there? Not until a little bit later with a big event that we'll talk about. Uh, we keep on trailing this special event. Um, we do. <laughs> but, but about but Star Car itself is. Uh, an example of somewhere that we might call a persistent place, that, that there was a sense of people having an attachment with a place and returning yeah. to it on a regular periodic basis. Yes, I w- In fact, the dryland archaeology at Star Car, there are about, I think, three or four football pitches worth of mm. stone activity Never mind what's what's preserved in the uh, the waterlogged areas. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that I was going to bring that up. That in quite recent years, over the last ten years or so, there are um, finds of much more substantial houses than ever were thought to have existed in the Mesolithic. Uh, most of them in um, the north part of the British Isles, actually. Um, Caroline, um, have you got? Have you ever found any nice houses in in Scotland from this period, or have you know of some that you've? Uh, um you've uh, the other uh, the colleagues of Doug well the interesting thing is that we now have a lot of evidence of structures that people used and we see a whole range so uh, when I excavated on Rom in fact we got evidence of several different types of structures mm-hmm. including some uh, that had sort of dug slot foundation trenches and so must have been you know what we might call a fairly robust structure but I think what you're talking about are the big circular houses Mm -hmm. and um, the first ones were discovered in the 1980s in the north of Ireland sites like Mount Sandal but we now have evidence for these 
uh, really from all over. I believe that the furthest south is just outside Liverpool. Um, and there's certainly ones from Northumberland and, in fact, many coming up now in Scotland, very often by what we know as the coast today, although it wasn't necessarily the coast then because sea levels were different. Some are a bit further inland, though. And, of course, that's a very difficult thing because for various reasons it's much easier for us to find sites uh, in the coastal strip. So when we tend to say that things are coastal, that may just be that we haven't found material inland. But we have other things as well. We have much smaller windbreaks, uh, smaller shelters. So people are using a variety of different types of structures that are appropriate um, to the area. But I think one of the things about these circular houses, I mean, they're usually they're about four or five metres in diameter. They've got um, quite large posts, quite often with evidence mm. that uh, posts have been replaced. They may have been permanent structures in the landscape. That doesn't mean that they were used permanently or indeed that they were used permanently by the same uh, group. Um, it may have been that people left them and came back to them, which is the sort of thing that we know happened in other parts of the world. People would leave a structure um, ready for the next lot of the next visitors, if you like, a little bit like a, a mountain bothy in Scotland today. Yeah. Or it may have been that uh, society, you know, some people were living there on a year-round basis and other people were coming and going. Uh, we need to kind of be perhaps much more flexible in the way that we talk about things, I think. Some of our ideas are very based on our own preconception where a home is a house that you live in all the year round. And I think that might have been very different then. Absolutely. And it's interesting that so many of them have come up, as you say, by the coast and uh, in the north of the British Isles. Now, is it is that just a, an accident of where they've been preserved? Or uh, and, and are we should we be um, looking for different types of structures in the south? Or is it just that they've all been ploughed out? I, I think that I think the chronology and again, this is these are open conversations happening in the, the archaeological world. As Caroline says, the evidence we've accrued over, you know, the last even even decade, this is all quite recent. Um, we have the luxury often of um, surviving charcoal carbon uh, in the form generally of hazelnut shells. These were kind of ubiquitous in the Mesolithic, the, the favourite, almost like a staple. Yeah. Uh, the fact that you can roast them and store them as well is, is significant. Um, but being able to um, acquire radiocarbon dates has given us a really interesting chronology that suggests, number one, there's a relationship of um, what's going on here and the dating of it, especially in northern England into Scotland, there's a relationship between that and what's happening to the broader environment. And we were talking here about significantly rising sea levels in a way that um, an individual, and certainly between generations, would be very conscious about. And I think there would be storytelling about that, effectively about lost territory, lost lands and lost resources. So it's actually looking like there's a relationship between, and again, I'll come back to the archaeology if I could in a moment, there's a relationship chronologically with what's happening in uh, the now lost land of, of Doggerland, the North Sea Plain, rising sea levels, and we should suggest displaced people. 
Um, uh, the population of the UK may only have been about 20,000. It's very difficult to estimate this stuff. So we're not talking about masses of people, but we have territory which is rapidly disappearing. It's at that point, as we're starting to be separated from continental Europe, it's at that point that the stone tools, the little composite, almost like drill bit, uh, usually barbs of arrowheads, um, but multifunctional, the technology here changes at the same time as we become separated. That new technology, things were bigger and, and kind of fatter stone tool-wise in the early Mesolithic. At the point we truly start to become an island, separation of peoples, that technology becomes smaller. We call it narrow blade. That smaller technology is the one that's predominantly associated with these large, really quite large structures. So I think for me, that's, it, it's an unfolding, fascinating story. Yeah, there needs to be a lot more kind of accuracy in the radiocarbon dates to get the fine-grained picture. And there are, have been also recent advances in that, you know, with the Bayesian modelling and so on. And so there's a lot being done at the moment about the early Neolithic and the development of that. And it would be lovely to have a programme. Um, there might be one going on, I don't know. You, you might know about the to get a much, a much better... Um, dated picture of the developments of the Mesolithic and as you say from the early to the later period uh, so we've we've touched a little bit about uh, on a little bit about the environment um, so that I mean really in basically the Mesolithic is after the ice age so um, what happens directly after the ice age Caroline what happens to the landscape well um, in fact it's I mean there's a lot of change going on. And I think one of the things, you know, when I started out in archaeology, I was interested in the Mesolithic and, and set out to work in it, but really very little was known. And as um, we've been saying, I mean, we know so much more now, but it is still a period where almost every new site throws something else into the arena for us to think about. And actually, um, I so my research at the moment is concerned with... Um, underwater landscapes looking at the, the way that things have changed and in many ways um i and kind of i disagree totally with the idea that we have displaced people and that this is a sort of um a disaster you know but what is actually happening to the landscape in a broad way is that at the very end of the ice age Britain is connected to the continent and there is a massive landmass. I mean, Britain is an insignificant little part of that landmass. Yes, almost. You know, it's sort of our, it's the western extremities. And that landmass, in the past, we've sometimes called it a land bridge. And that gives totally the wrong idea, because we now know from work done by Vince Gaffney and people um, now, he, he uh, works from Bradford University, um, that this landscape has a topography, it has hills, rivers, lakes, um, valleys, you know, it's not just a kind of some sort of flat, featureless plains. Actually, and, can I, if, if I may, I, I noted down some of the, um, Vince's book, by the way, is absolutely fabulous. It's called Europe's Lost World, the Rediscovery of Dogland by the Council for British Archaeology. I, I did draft down just some of the amazing statistics, um, stuff that's hidden under the North Sea today. Over 24 lakes, wow. 1,600 kilometres of rivers, 700 kilometres of coastline, 
at least 10 major estuaries, like we would know the Rhine and the Thames today, um, three, 300 square kilometres of salt marsh. Wow. And the point, and thank you for letting me interject, is that this is actually the ideal environment for humans to occupy and you're right that actually the the uk as, as britain as we know it today was probably quite marginal yes i mean i think if you go back a little bit even before that i mean we know that the people who are living in northern europe at the time um are very much plains hunters they're very often uh, living a life that's associated with sort of large mammals like reindeer and so on and in many ways i think um the uk that particularly the northern uk uh, when they ventured over here would have been quite threatening for them because they're getting into mountainous territory because if you drop sea level of course um, the bits of Scotland that are already mountains become even yeah. higher. They're also getting into areas where you've got um, ice sheets and ice caps and things. And that doesn't mean that um, people can't venture in there. I mean, we know that people are specialised, that they, they're quite well able to go and be, become ice hunters and they may have been also moving along stretches of coastline. But um, And we do now have good evidence in Scotland of people here. But I think that... The people who were coming here, we don't have a huge amount of evidence, and I think they are largely explorers. They're venturing into somewhere that's quite unfamiliar. And as Spencer says, you know, the plains of Doggerland or the, the, the terrain of Doggerland is exactly, you know, the right sort of landscape for them. And then what happens after the Ice Age is that because of um, two processes that landscape slowly disappears. It slowly becomes inundated in a process that culminates in the North Sea that we all know and love today. Those two processes are the release of water back into the ocean. So water that's been taken up by the glaciers um, becomes released back into the oceans. And then also uh, the Earth's crust, which has had the heavy weight of ice pushing it down, um, loses that overburden and because in fact the earth's crust is flexible it begins to bounce back um, so you actually have movement in the earth's crust and the net result of that is that doggerland slowly disappears and again as, as um, Spencer says I mean that rate of disappearance at times would have been perceptible to the generations who lived there. But we know that it's not just um, a single sort of curve. So in some decades, it would have actually moved quite fast. And in other decades, it would have moved slowly. So there would have been times where people were aware of the changing landscape around them and times when they were less aware of that. But at the same time, you also have a, a lot of other change going on, uh, temperatures, initially are getting better um you go through periods where uh, there's increased rainfall and so on in fact then you have a, a period where um temperatures get cooler again and things close down i mean one thing we know about these millennia if you're kind of looking at um the first say three millennia after the end of the ice age the people who are living in that period for them 
change is the norm. And I think that this is one thing that we find very difficult to comprehend today, that we are very concerned about rising sea levels in our own lives, and we kind of transfer that worry back into the past. But there are many things that make it a worry for us, and one of those things is that we don't remember a time when it happened. So for us, it's new and threatening. For them, a changing landscape was part of the world in which people lived. There, there's actually, at the, at the towards the tail end of, of uh, Margaret's book, there it's just on a few lines, but there is a reference point to a consciousness about beaches that were out of the sea, as in raised yeah. beaches, and a landscape that is in flux. In yeah. flux. I think um, I w- that's really interesting because I, I was going to say that there are quite a lot of parallels with the fears that we hold about rising sea levels, but maybe, but I like how you've turned that on its head, Caroline, and you're saying that <clears throat> actually we're projecting our own fears on the past, and that's, co- of course we are, um, and uh, it wouldn't have been quite, it might not have been quite so um, strange to have lived through that at certain periods anyway. Now, at the... Well, if, if I could, sorry, can I just interrupt, can I say something else about that? I think the other thing is projecting that we, or the three of us, I'm pretty certain, are not very at home on the mm. sea. And all the evidence that we has, well, that we have from Mesolithic Scotland shows that some people at least are specialised coastal hunt-gatherers, societies. They are well-versed in the technology that you need to survive. And it's something that I've been looking at, really, I think, for the last, I suppose, 10 years or so. But um, And, of course, the nice thing about the Mesolithic is that we have absolutely no evidence at all, so we can pontificate and keep changing our stories. We have no sort <laughs> as to how the evidence is interpreted but it is quite possible if you look at other societies around the world that you do have societies who are as at home on the sea as on the land and you also have societies who don't distinguish between water and land and we do so for us any change in that it is is threatening but if you think about it if you're um, a group of hunter-gatherers uh, who are living somewhere on the shores of Doggerland at a time of rapid sea level rise. Um, in fact, all it is, if you're used to being out in boats, and you may well, I mean, there are societies who spend most of the day on the water. They don't. They only go on to land to sleep. If you're that sort of group, then what you're talking about is a rebalancing of the land. You're talking about water in different places, but you're not necessarily talking about a threat it only becomes a threat if you don't have enough food to support all the people that you need to support and all that we know about population levels and things they're fairly low so while i would say that clearly yes if you're living inland and you're a plains hunter relying on reindeer or red deer or so on loss of land is going to be a threat but if you're living along the coast what you actually see with the drowning of Doggerland, is an increase in coast, not a decrease. Fascinating. I'm, until until yes. the day... Don't say anything. The Don't say anything, Okay, now... <laughs> Um, uh, we, I think we've set the scene quite well with all the um, uh, loads of evidence and loads of discussion there. And um, 
uh, and we're going to take a short break uh, and then when uh, the listeners get back we I am going to actually we're going to go much more into the book and I'll read an extract from the book and we'll tell you about this special event that happened so um, just um, take a, a short break now to listen to these messages Hello everyone, Chris Webster here from the Archaeology Podcast Network, and we're giving away an iPad Mini 4 to one of our listeners. The iPad Mini 4 came out in September. It's a 16 gigabyte space gray iPad with AT&T cellular ready antenna. All that means is it comes with a GPS. You do not need to get a data plan. And you don't even need to be on AT&T if you never get a plan to get a data plan. It just has GPS. It also has a fingerprint sensor and Apple Pay ready and all the good perks that come with that. So it's a good iPad. We use them in the field. There are two easy ways to enter. One, do a Profiles and CRM interview before December 15th, 2015, or recommend someone for an interview. You'll both get an entry once the interview is posted. If you want to know more about Profiles and CRM, go to www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash profiles. All the questions are listed right there. The other way to enter is to like the APN Facebook page and share it with your friends on Facebook to get the word out about our awesome podcasts. The winner will be announced December 16th, 2015 at 4 p.m. Pacific time. So get your entries in, send me those emails for people that want to do the Profiles in Syrian podcast, and good luck to everyone. iMac, take us out with a binary solo. Welcome back. Now we're going to tell you about the special event that happens that is really the central, it's the linchpin of this book, isn't it? Um, All the events that happen in the book are precipitated by this event. Spencer, would you like to introduce it? What what is the event that happens? I would. In in fact, there are there are two there are two periods in close proximity. There's there's an event which would have massive impact, but it, it sits in the context of other things happening uh, within the environment. Um, I just wanted to frame, we're talking about long periods of time. If I can frame very simply the Mesolithic, the end of the Ice Age, let's think of it from around 10,000 BC to around 4,000 BC when, uh, the, the, when agriculture, the first farmers, um, started operating. Um, right, so we, we, have, we have this... Um, a changing climate generation on generation that Caroline's addressed. Um, Things get warmer, things get cooler, things get wetter, things get drier. But there's a particular period, and we actually have to look at North America, what might have been happening there to explain it. Around um, 6,200 BC, so that's 8,200 years ago, we call it the 8.2 episode. Um, the climate is warming, and the final uh, ice sheets in North America um, are disappearing. Uh, there is a huge body. Think about the Great Lakes today. There is a huge body of, of very cold water. The, the ice holding that in collapses. A massive body of cold water, uh, I would suggest it's changing the the warm currents that today we 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 really need the warm currents that come up from the, the Caribbean. Those currents are all interrupted, and we end up with I think it's about hundred and hundred or one hundred and fifty years of very cold, 
temperatures collapse to maybe minus 10 degrees Celsius, uh, or average winter temperatures. Um, it's not that the landscape's uninhabitable, but very rapidly, your, resor your resources, um, your, uh, both the vegetation and the animals, everything is in turmoil. And then gradually we start uh, warming up again. But the important thing about uh, 6200 BC, this cold period, number one, archaeologically, we couldn't have done this 20 years ago. Archaeologically, um, it's Karen Wicks and Stephen Mythen looking at now many, many Scottish Mesolithic sites, all with radiocarbon dates, accurate radiocarbon dates, have been trying to understand what happened in the landscape. So through this cold period, uh, long story short, the landscape is depopulated. The number, if you use the number of sites as a kind of indicator, we call it a proxy, for what people are doing and where in that landscape, there is a change for maybe 10 generations or so. So here comes the irony. So, so number one, sea levels are, because of that cold water influx, sea levels rise very rapidly, one and a half meters, two meters. Um, around 6,150 BC, so not, not long after things start warming up again, there is a gargantuan uh, landslip in the deeper part of the North Sea, just off Norway. It's called the Storega Slide. Um, if I find my notes, I, I did have a statistic about the massive amount of land that slipped into the, uh, the oceanic trench. 390 square kilometers slipped under the sea. It caused a tsunami. It caused more than one tsunami within, let's say, a day or a very short period of time. The evidence for the tsunami, again, these are quite recent findings. The evidence came from, again, back to northern Scotland, where, well away from where you would even anticipate the sea levels then to be, there is a marine sandy layer. That sandy layer extends right down the, the northern coast of Scotland. We find hints of it elsewhere, but we can't be quite sure. Uh, the River Tees, about halfway up the east coast of, of, of Britain, of England, sorry. Um, about several metres down, there were some cores put down. And again, there's, a, there's an inundation event. Could be a storm, a big one. Um, or it could be the tsunami. The tsunami was so huge um, that... We know that the North Sea as we know it today is effectively a funnel. Um, when you have a displacement of water, which is what this landslip effectively was, it's not like a normal wave. And again, in recent years, we actually have, we've seen ourselves on television, we've seen the Japanese tsunami more recently, uh, the tragedy there, we've seen the, effectively the Indian Ocean tsunami. And what happens when you displace water as opposed to the waves that we're used to today, even in a storm, driven by the moon, driven by wind. This displaced water is transferring the energy from that massive event um, over huge distances, over oceans. When you look at, at um, what was Doggerland, uh, the, the very low-lying land, uh, the hills were only maybe 40 metres tall, the concentration of that energy must have been absolutely devastating. The fact that we do find these sandy layers, um, uh, you know, pretty high up the coast. And we also know what happens to tsunamis when they enter estuaries and river channels. They don't stop. 
uh, in fact, if I, if I could at this point, Kim, if I can um, read out, as opposed to me talking to what it might have been like, um, I've got a short passage to read, if I could. And again, I'm, I'm looking at uh, Europe's Lost World, The Rediscovery of Doggerland, edit, edited by Vince Gaffney and some others. <clears throat> and actually, this is a quote of a quote. Uh, the quote is from a gentleman called Kevin Edwards. Water from the Northern North Sea would have rushed into the space. People on land would have noticed that the sea receded, probably as far as the eye could see, in a matter of tens of minutes. <clears throat> they may have thought that the newly revealed shellfish and stranded fish represented an amazing bonanza, or that Doggerland had reappeared. The seawater, having piled up in the depression, then begins to flow out again as a series of massive waves or tsunamis traveling at 20 to 30 meters per second on shallow coasts. Four or five waves would have hit the coast over two or three hours, each separated by a strong backlash as water flowed back to sea. Any coastal settlements would have been flooded without warning. Indeed, the water depth would have been many meters and people and animals would have been drowned. Coastal and estuarine areas, resources and people would have been devastated. And current evidence and modelling suggests that these waves could be as high as 14, 15 metres. Yeah, I've got the, the um, tsunami deposits, um, the records in Shetland, you get the deposits up to heights of 20 metres above the present wow. coastline. In the west of Norway, um, 12 metres. And then once you get onto sort of the mainland of Scotland, running down northeast of Scotland, it's about six metres. But of course, as Spencer says, once you get into the funnel effect, um, although you're further away from the um, centre, different things happen. And there's a big project currently chasing the tsunami deposits to see what happens, you know, in sort of Iceland yeah. and the Faroes and um, yeah. around the, the um, other parts of the exactly. North so Atlantic. Quite nice things about the tsunami. There are apple pips from tsunami deposits in um, just north of Dundee. And so we know that it happened probably in the autumn. And um, in Norway now, they've got moss from some of the deposits, which, because it's been sealed within a, an anaerobic deposit, it's still green. I mean, it looks like moss that you or I might pick today, but that has allowed them to get very, very precise Blimey, dates on it. We, we, were probably, we were probably already um, almost an island, as in separated from... Uh, Dogger Island by a, a body of water around 6,500 BC, about the start of that cold event, sea levels are rising. The final breach when we truly become uh, the British Isles that we know today uh, probably didn't really happen until about 5,500, another thousand years later when what we know as the English Channel today, when the land bridge there was breached. And again, that separation from the continent, um, being Brits, and we go back to our stone tool technology, we start doing things rather differently to what's happening yes, on the continent. Yes, absolutely, in the introduction of microliths and microburins. Um, the, uh, uh, that, your, um, your description is quite interesting. Your, um, the, the extract that you read out, Spence, is quite interesting to contrast with how Margaret Elphinstone um, has described this tsunami in her book. Now, the, the main character, well, one of the main characters is Kemen, who is um, a man who was part of the Lynx 
clan and who lived on the east coast of Scotland or possibly slightly further south um, and uh, in Northumber Northumberland maybe and um, uh, it's he, he he sees the tsunami he's part of it he is he sees its devastation and it's his displacement um, as he moves across Scotland um, that you see that forms the the basis of this book so I'm going to read an extract um, of, that Margaret Elphinstone wrote um, and you can it's, it's it's a great contrast to the extract you've just read the sands were growing bigger I saw that first no, that was wrong. The sea was shrinking. The tide was coming in, but the sea was going out. We saw, but we also couldn't see, because it wasn't possible. Out and further out, beyond the lowest tide. Sand we'd never seen before, pale and gleaming. Ripples like stars and the frightened crabs scuttling over them. Fish flapping, madly trying to swim in this sudden world that had no water. Kemen, the sea, look! I saw it then, far off under the sunless sky. A grey cliff, white-tipped, a cliff made of water, a noise like a mountain falling. My heart turned cold. And the camp behind us, my mother, my sisters, the children. The grey cliff roared like a waterfall. Its sound filled the world. It raced towards us. We froze. The grey cliff crashing down, our world ending. So it's, I think, um, Caroline, that when... when Margaret spent quite a lot of time with you, didn't she, when she was writing this book? Um, okay. She didn't just draw on the archaeological record, did she? By this was no. I mean, she, she was looking at um, accounts of tsunamis and survivors, and I think that's one of the things that is so good about fiction in general, and certainly came home to me with Margaret. I mean, archaeology as we do it as archaeologists, is very monochrome, particularly the further you go back, because, of course, we don't have the voice of the people, so we don't have the noises. We don't hear the dogs barking, the children shouting, people laughing. We don't hear um, birdsong. And equally, we don't have colour, you know, colour um, on archaeological sites. OK, we can all think of the kind of ready ochres and blacks and things that you get in cave art. But it's likely that there was, you know, much more colour. And any excavation that you do in the UK today tends to be very much greys and sandy colours mm. and things from the soils. Um, so what you can do through using fiction is actually give people a voice and bring that sort of thing back into it which is you know what personally I think Margaret has a particular Absolutely. skill in doing if we concentrate Absolutely. more on the book now I think um and some of the ideas that she's filled in some of those um uh those areas that we have gaps in where you know we don't really know who was doing what was uh, were the men the hunters and the women stayed at home or did the women go hunting did what what were children's lives like and um, I was fascinated with Margaret's um, description of all of these aspects. I wanted to know, um, you know, if you know where she got those ideas from, but also um, how likely you think they would be, both of you. Um, so, I mean, if we start with um, uh, the children, uh, what I love is um, that when a child is born in this world um the child has to be recognized as 
someone who has recently died um in order to be uh, and is given their name and is and is brought and then yeah. is allowed to live and is allowed to stay in the um in the community in the family and it's it's almost heartbreaking when no one recognizes this one little child until finally um um that his uh, father i think recognizes it is that right i if it's kemen that recognizes it so it's um yeah uh a, a love uh, do you know do you know where she got that from where she got that idea from i i think yes i mean i found that all of that very striking and this idea that yeah the sort of naming and, and recognizing of children i think that is an inuit practice or was an inuit practice i mean she certainly read very widely around uh, material from uh, Inuit ethnographies and uh, Sami and sort of Northern Hemisphere and also a little bit because it's a particular thing of mine. Um, she was looking down in the South of South America in some of the books and writings. But I think that one came from the Inuit. And of course, one thing we have to be very careful of when we're doing this is drawing on any one society because we can't ever say that one particular society was an analogy for the past but what we can do is use different societies to open our eyes to possibilities and of course it's fiction so you know what you want to do is to try and draw on a whole range of different ideas and pull them together to create your own mythical kind of new society and it's also if you a like. great way for her to um to show how different the Mesolithic would have been and because it yeah. is the difference with our practice that comes out and you know that they're loving they very loving parents and they look after their children yeah. I was also struck by how the children did not fight about eating oh my god I mean I have a five-year-old <laughs> and uh, <laughs> The, the number of times I have to tell her to eat her food and there's, you know, I was thinking, oh, that would be great yeah. to be in the Mesolithic and they wouldn't, they'd just be happy to eat whatever they got. <laughs> there's, yeah, there's, a, there's a lovely passage, um, and again, um, maybe not to read out, but there, there is a passage that readers will be aware of or will come across where um, I think the, the women have, have uh, somehow kicked the men out of the camp by persuading the men that it was a good idea that they had that they should go hunting. So you basically got this huge gossip circle, and the kids are there as well. Oh, I forget the character, I think it was Hosea, um, starts whining and, and whinging about bringing up little boys. It's just a wonderful paragraph that I think connects us with, and I guess I'm, I'm a male, I haven't grown up much, I'm still age six. Um, but just those anecdotes that I think bond you know what the way we live today with the story that margaret's trying to uh, trying to tell us yeah and some things are universals and then other things it's no bad thing to be reminded yeah. subtly that they're different so kind of uh problems that i think every society has over helping adolescents to make the break and to yes. move into their own lifestyles that comes out very well in the book um different societies have different ways of of dealing with it and you know but it, it does help us to remember that yes these are people just like us just like the sort of thing where where someone sometimes in the past you find 
um, a stone tool that's broken or that ha- where something's gone wrong in the making of it. And you know, okay, you know, we don't know the swear words of the past, but you know jolly well that whoever was trying to make that arrowhead or that knife or whatever probably thought them as it all went horribly wrong and, you know, they were being nagged to come in for their tea and everything else. There's, there's, one, um, there's one excavation I did a number, a number of years ago on the North York Moors where, and again, forgive me, there's a bit of imagination in this, but when you plot all of, all of the, the stone tools and, and the waste and you can see what was happening, uh, again, with my imagination around, you know, small campfires, just as Margaret describes, there's almost times where you find those broken things and it's as if somebody had... As you say, Caroline <laughs> swore a little bit and chucked oh, it. Oh, lo- uh, yeah. I, I think we should use our imaginations a bit more on these sites. I think that, um, yeah. The the and I think also in the book, there's there's a um, often when we talk when we do write archaeology or um, uh, or talk about it in conferences, we're talking in the abstract and trying to be objective and all that kind of thing, and we forget that we're always talking about about what are the men doing, <laughs> why is and it's and there's there's not a, an idea about what the children were doing. I tell you, I've been trying to write um, something for teachers about what children were doing in prehistory for a couple of years, and I have a block because it would take. A PhD to bring it all together because there's so little been written about it. There's a very good book by somebody called um, Karen Blafer Hardy called Mother Nature that looks at women and the relationship with children and child rearing. It's quite a long and daunting book, but it is well, well worth getting hold oh, of and you. reading. That's a really good tip. I will try it. I have been reading a few things. It is, it, is, it is interesting there that there are, again, we, we go back to stone tools, the things that largely survive, combined with not just what we find archaeologically, but the role of experimental archaeology. Um, there are senses that you can identify at least apprentices, yes. learners yeah. in the archaeological record around stone tool manufacture. There, there are a series of traits that when you add them together hint at um, the learning process. Um, suffice to say, something interesting I read recently was that, again, our, our modern minds and the way that we bring up our children today, um, we tend to think that children think in the diminutive, that if they want to play with tools, the tools have to be small um, because, the child, because the child is small. And actually, the evidence is that that isn't true. The way that children conceive, uh, perceive the world is on an adult scale. And so what they're trying to do is on an adult scale. The experimental archaeology seems to prove again and again that actually the most skilled uh, flint nappers are actually the mm. kids. Wow. That's, I'd love to find out. You have to give me some um, some details of that, some of that work, Spencer. That would be really good. Um, I, the, the women as well. The women are great. The women kind of start off the story. They're the ones, and in fact, if I describe the the book is actually set around a campfire, isn't it? It's or or around a fire in a settlement. It's um, of uh, it's a, a, an extended family that are living together and they're telling the children about the recent events in the past, uh, and each person takes turns to speak so you know that as you read it um margaret elphinstone has said um so alaya is speaking now or hosea or nakane is speaking now and it's these three women the mother nakane and her two daughters alaya and hosea are, are, are really kind of the drivers of quite a lot of the story as well 
with Kemen coming in from outside, um, but having to be accepted by these women. <laughs> I feel, I feel anyway. Um, there's also I wanted to um, talk about Nakane's um, uh, initiation into magic and into um, shamanism, really, uh, which is there, but portrayed as something that would be unusual how unusual do you think it might i mean this is obviously it's difficult to to um to talk you know to to kind of uh, theorize about but um how do we have any much evidence about shamanism and magic in in these people's lives and who were actually the the priests or priestesses of this this religion <laughs> I think it's very difficult. I mean, we have plenty of evidence about shamanism in the world generally at various periods. But, of course, going back to the Mesolithic, um, the evidence gets sketchy. You almost have more evidence, perhaps, depending on how you interpret it, when you go back a little further and you get into the Paleolithic mm. and you begin to find quite interesting and strange yeah. cave deposits and yeah. things going on in caves uh for mesolithic scotland we don't we don't even have the human skeletons i mean we've got about half a dozen finger bones and that's about it so it is very difficult so we're kind of going on universal human principles i suppose um assuming that at this period, people are likely to have some sort of relationship with the land and that, you know, it's a universal human truth that people try to make sense of the world around them in certain ways. And sometimes these ways are guided by particular people. And um, I mean, it certainly wouldn't have been a shamanistic society in the way in which we understand 21st century yeah shamanism to operate yeah. but i think it is quite likely that there are people who mediate between common or garden people like you and i perhaps and the world around them mm. um but you could create and people have created different novels with different operational systems and of course there's not going to be any one overarching system as well i mean okay did what happened in the north of scotland is that the same as what happened in the south of england we you know you do get cultural differences um in fact when you look in some places once population increases um, you can have, you know, different languages spoken in adjoining mountain valleys and along different river systems and things. So the sort of scope for human diversity in the past is enormous. And I think sometimes as archaeologists, we tend to forget that. I mean, that comes out in the book in many ways, because essentially what she's interested in is what happens when people with different cultural backgrounds meet. And she's looking at what happens when people from the east meet up with people from the west you know and how how do we cope with these kind of encounters with strangers yeah. if you now, like let's just take a short yeah. break and we'll be back in a minute to go into that a little bit more 
All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs. Did aliens build Stonehenge? Did the Easter Island statues walk? Did the Vikings colonize Midwest America? What does mainstream archaeology have to say about all of this? Listen to the Archaeological Fantasies podcast and learn about popular archaeological mysteries. Hoax or fact? Learn to tell the difference with Dr. Kenneth Fader and co-host Sarah of the Archie Fantasies blog. Check out the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Archie Fantasies and get ready to think critically. Let's get back to the show. Funny beady blokes you will see are a staple of archaeology. Welcome back. Now we were just about, Caroline was just about to tell us a little bit about the, uh, well, uh, to go in this idea about how different people would um, have come, had come together in this story in The Gathering Night by Margaret Elphinston. And they identified themselves differently. They, I, you also mentioned this, Caroline. You, you said that people needed go-betweens um, between the the normal people and uh, those who could speak to the spirits. And it's almost as if the animals have the spirits, and people identify with particular animals in this book, isn't it? Yes. I mean, I think it, that's a. I mean, it's an idea that I like, but we do have to remember that it is a very nice story, and we don't really know Indeed. what went on in the past, but. You do know that there are other parts of the world today and in the past where people have used sort of totemic animals. Um, there are other things that you can um, use as totemic presences. But for the purposes of the story, I think the animals worked really, really well and kind of also helped to set a scene where the world was different because you have a Scotland with lynxes mm. and things in it, which, of course, is very Although different I, to I today. going to be re- reintroduced, yeah. They're coming That would be great. Yes, yes. Um, and uh, these, so the, it's also the, it's, it's quite useful, isn't it, because it gives you the sense that um, the people are of these different clans and the, and the animals almost kind of describe how other people might perceive um, some of the, these. So the people from the Lynx clan come and, and they go past several different clans. I can't remember who the main clan is, what, um, the Nakane's clan. We have York, the lynx, the yes. heron, and yes. the seal. And so you yeah. do get those those um, animals that are very distinctive on that west coast, don't you? And then the lynx coming in to that and kind of um, really um, uh, upsetting things quite a lot. So the the Kemen and his brother, who I always, I always want to pronounce his name, Bassajoun, Bassajoun, something like that, or Bassajoun. Um, uh, both ex- escape the tsunami and go uh, and go to the west coast and then Kemen loses his brother um, and carries on by himself um, but Bassajoun is still around somewhere <laughs> um, and I'm trying not to give any spoilers away um, but the the book culminates in what we've really been well you know hunting is is actually um uh, explains quite a few times in the book and lots of different types of animals, lots of different types of, of food to gather. Like when honey is found, for instance, I know that that's a huge thing for um, 
uh, for the settlement and particularly for the family that found it and is able to share it with the rest of the of the clan and gain prestige for the fact that they have shared this honey round. Um, so the, there's a quite a good richness in the uh, in shown in what what they're eating um and that the women are going out and helping as well when they uh go and hunt walruses is it walrus when um are they big seals yeah. seals <laughs> seals yes i think and so the, yes. the girls yeah. are there and the women are there as well because it's um it's a pretty difficult job otherwise with only a couple of men um and what I also like uh, when they do go hunting um, and they bring something back, the men uh, do this thing. They were they're always very self-deprecating about what they brought back. They said, oh, well, I know that you don't want a man in your yeah. in your house that has only brought this this uh, measly, thin, uh, diseased deer back for you. I thought that was really interesting. And uh, uh, what do you know where that came from? That, that again, right, that's an right. Inuit practice. I've been reading a book recently by um, Richard Nelson called Shadow of the Hunter, which has stories about Inuit. Yeah. It was written in the 60s um, about Inuit hunters, and they do that very much. I think that's a fairly common practice when people have been hunting right. large mammals to kind of uh, either for the people back at home to say, well, you haven't really done very well, or for the hunters to say that, are partly kind of designed to stop people getting big-headed and developing yeah. too much prestige, and also so that you don't anger your the pride, gods yeah. with your arrogance mm. and pride, I think. I mean, one of the things that really interests me is the way in which in some of these societies, and I think it comes out a bit in the book, um, in actual fact, that's it's that kind of hunting that gets the prestige. But in actual fact, the main calorific intake of people is often what the women are doing, the kind of small-term gathering of roots and small mammals and birds and things and berries and so on. That's what keeps people alive. But the stories, you know, you can't really go out and gather some nuts and then come back and say it was this big and it was really dangerous. You can do that sort of thing from hunting bigger animals. And so the kind of attitudes to food get slightly skewed. I think I think there's another, uh, archaeologically, there's another interesting observation that could be an isolated case. We, we don't have enough of the pattern. Um, mm. Bristol Channel, um, it was actually on Time Team, uh, um, oh, yes. an area called Goldcliff East. Yeah. Uh, human footprints were found. <clears throat> so again, when we think about our societies today, the way our, our society is structured, and we try and project that back on the past and on the archaeology, we have layers of prejudice. Um, the interesting find at Goldcliff, there are a few places around uh, the British coast where both animal and human footprints have been preserved. Uh, but this set of footprints from the Mesolithic um, were, I don't know the total count, but the observation was that actually over 50% of the footprints mm. were children, 7% were adults, and that sense of, and again, we can't have a, a golden rule here, but that sense that there's a family group um, in, in that particular place, not a camp, but actually what, what were they doing? If they were hunter-gathering fishing, there is a sense of that, that's a commute, that's a family, that's a, that's a group of people, and there's not necessarily a division of labour. You know, we, we talk sometimes about boys with arrows, uh, that, yeah. that imposition of uh, 
Boxing always been a, a, a male enterprise is, is actually not something that and we I think can necessarily that's what Margaret's done so well in this book is that it's um, it's clearly a community enterprise that everybody's involved and the children do do a lot of work and yet they're given quite a lot of latitude until they're initiated and they have to grow up and um, uh, is it um, Isaiah that's um, or that's the youngest daughter I can't remember Esty uh, oh, is the SD, one that grows yeah. up through the book. And she's just, wonderful. Just and, um, voice. Yeah, yeah, you can really see her. Her, I hate this word, journey. As she <laughs> becomes an adult, and she's kind of not really looking forward to it because it'll mean a lot more responsibility. And then again, uh, one boy has caught her eye, and she can't really marry him until she's uh, or get not marry, but you know, she can't really get together with him until <laughs> uh, until she's grown up. I, I yeah. have to say about the, about the book. I have to say about the book something I particularly yes. enjoyed. There is humour in it. There is that that freeze on that friction between the genders, um, which is which is sometimes serious, uh, but but sometimes uh, humorous as well. Um, but there is that that sense of uh, actually it's the the women that hold everything together. I know that's what I liked about it. Uh, the gossip yeah. that, that actually happens. Yeah. So I think those themes are again it is fiction. Um, but they really do humanise this, this distant period. Now, I have us. to admit that when I run um, an, my Mesolithic session at my local museum, Chilton Open Air Museum, I have I've taken on quite a few of the ideas from this from this book actually. Uh, but the fact that we become the Deer Clan and we are um, uh, we wander around and everybody contributes as a whole team, um, and the uh, the kids are encouraged to um, gather things that obviously have been planted. We're not getting them to pick wild stuff at all. Um, uh, and that the children have quite a lot of latitude and yet they've, they're have they being taught to make fire and things like that. Um, <laughs> um, do you think that's a terrible thing, Spencer, that I've used this book as evidence for the Mesolithic? Or is am I allowed to do that? I think you're... you're... <laughs> <It's>... <sighs> As an, as an embodiment of a tradition which, with our smartphones and the internet, uh, the, 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 the sense of storytelling, the oral traditions pre-writing that existed. So starting with the story that you have to, well, you don't have to weave it together, but Margaret does it so spectacularly. The fact that she's drawing on a reasonably substantial body of evidence, even though it's scattered uh, both in historical societies and, and from the, the archaeological world, scattered over a large area, to weave that together is absolutely the right thing to do. I think um, you kicked off um, uh, uh, this, this, um, this talk with the dilemmas that we all sometimes suffer from in reading very black and white, dry, <laughs> evidence-based academic reports. It's absolutely suitable for us to want to have a story and a narrative and as caroline said uh, uh, um, earlier as well um i've just lost my <laughs> don't worry that's fine it's, it's so, <laughs> Sorry, it's just... so basically what you're saying is that i can keep going but i, I think i mean obviously i've done a lot of, yes. of uh, other research and looked at local stuff as well and down in the south here um in southern england that we don't have quite as much good evidence actually although there's lo lots of, of flint scatters and there's and uh, hazelnut shells and red deer bones um and hearths along the river valleys so um we do have um the evidence of these persistent places and in, in similar ways and yet not the structures so much um but the um so our structures are very very um simple uh, that we've created at the museum um I love the fact that we are bringing this 
period to life. Um, do you think, Caroline, that this um, book would be, um, uh, or at least sections of it, would be suitable for teachers to use in classes that are studying this period? Because, of course, in England, um, I, I don't know if you know, um, that the the new history curriculum for Key Stage 2 starts with changes in Britain from the Stone Age to the Iron Age. And it does say that you can study some stuff in Scotland. It does. So that's fine. <laughs> um, do you think it would be suitable well, yes. I mean, I always used it when I was teaching. So I got my students, my, um, and they would be third and fourth year students right. at university. So, you know, fairly advanced level, but they had to um, read, uh, or I recommended that people read the novel. And I very often would, um, as a university teacher, um, what I would quite often get the students to, um, imagine that they were a novelist and rather than getting them to kind of write a story because not everybody can do that but it's useful to get them to think about what aspects of a particular period they might uh, use to bring that period to life what bits of evidence and information so I do think that uh, fiction has a a great role and I mean there is a, a lot of or increasing amounts of fiction written I mean obviously more once you get into the Neolithic and uh, coming forward in time but I think where you've got a book that has been carefully researched and is still mm. up to date um, I think it's a great I, I, it's thing to do. It's actually mind-blowing the amount of research that had to go into writing this book as someone who wants to write prehistorical fiction um, I and as an archaeologist, I find myself um, frozen again um, because of all the stuff I know that I need to find out about or make up, <laughs> but make up in an educated way. You know, educated guesses about the past. It's um, it's just an amazing amount of work that has gone into this, and yet also the the research isn't in there clumsily, is it? It's a wonderfully written story. I mean, it was interesting when she was doing the work because I kept having useful snippets of information to try and get her to put in, like, this is how you flint map and things. And, of course, she would say, no, 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 you don't put that into the book because if you're trying to get people to imagine that they're in the past, then flint mapping isn't something that you would need to describe. Flint mapping, you know, they would all be so used to it happening that it's not a, a big issue it would be like someone today describing how you ride a bicycle so it would look very false um so that was very interesting I mean I learned a huge amount from watching her doing the work um about sort of writing novels and things I, I have to say that it did make me think that it was something that I couldn't ever uh, you know contemplate but really what uh, Margaret did was put herself through um you know, I would say the equivalent of a, a sort of personalised mm. taught masters um, in order to accumulate. I mean, she had to do, yes, a huge amount of research. You were talking earlier about seal hunting. Well, I remember, you know, tracking down people who could tell us how you would go uh, about seal hunting, um, you know, with <laughs> the technology, the available technology and things. So not only, you know, was she looking at the archaeological evidence but she had to then take the technology and spend time finding people that could answer other questions yeah, and a, things amazing yeah. i know you really enjoyed it spencer what was your the the most um 
uh, moving or the, the bit of the book that sticks with you the most? Gosh, there are, there are so many themes and strands. <clears throat> um, in a general sense, it was that um, because Margaret isn't able to latch on to um, the things we call yeah. things today, time, distance, place. She makes a good point. There are no maps in this book because that is not necessarily how people understood themselves uh, within a landscape. Um, it's the fact that she had to um, find different names for distance, place, the seasons I loved. I mean, I guess right now on this call, uh, we're in the, the yellow leaf mm -hmm. moon. Um, so it's the epithets that she introduces that actually cause you to kind of rethink um, our relationship with time, place and space. And, and as an archaeologist, there's always a part of one's mind that, that actually wants to try and tap into, um, not necessarily about seasons and things, but wants to tap into what certain things would look like in the archaeological record if they survived at all. Um, I, I, I think I, I mentioned it before, but I particularly enjoyed something that you read so rarely about even today in uh, archaeological literature, whether very serious or um, maybe not, not a novel like this, um, but something that's for uh, mixed generations, uh, non-archaeologists. It is that sense of um, the community, the gossip, the gender relations, and as I touched on earlier, we do have some evidence for at least children in the archaeological record. So the fact that she weaves the bits of evidence together to give us that real sense of, I, by the end of the book, um, slightly emotional, but I actually felt uh, in the way that it was told through the eyes of all of the players in the story, yeah. I felt part of that community. And I think, again, so I, this, is, this is not the archaeologist speaking, but I, I thought in terms of an, an emotional attachment to the story, and her style is, it takes a little bit of getting used to at first, but once you're into it, you are perceiving the world with different labels, but a lot of commonality, and trying to translate from who we are today and how we work today and our frustrations today with uh, a different set of yeah. agendas in the past. Well, I think we can all agree that it's a fabulous book and um, Margaret Elphinstone is an amazing writer. Um, this was the first book of hers that I've read, but I will be um, picking up lots of other of hers as well. And um, She's written two very good wow, Viking wow. novels, which are the ones that, you know, Sea Road is particularly interesting. She's written yes, quite a yeah. lot of books um, and uh, often with a strong archaeological theme or a sort of theme that touches on aspects of archaeology. So. I'm hoping um, if she gets some time, uh, I would love um, a related novel to this to actually look at that, the transition from the Mesolithic hunter-gatherer fishers into the beginnings of the Neolithic, the monument builders, the, the agriculturalists, whether they're different people, all of, all the complexities that might be happening. That yeah. would be an absolutely it fascinating yeah. follow-up. There is a yeah. book, actually, that I'm going to um, uh, talk about in a later podcast um, called The Whitestone Stories by um, John Barrett. And um, it traces the, um, the history of a particular area. I think it's around Avebury, um, if I've read it right, um, from the Mesolithic through to the end of the Bronze Age. And it's kind of about a little bit about that, that Mesolithic, Neolithic transition. Um, and it is specifically written for children, which I quite liked. Um, so I'll be, I'll be talking about that. But I think, yeah, it would be wonderful to get Margaret to, uh, I don't suppose she takes commissions like that, does she? <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but maybe we can plant the seed in your yeah. head. Um, so I want to, I'll bring it to a close because this is longer than a usual podcast because my guests have been so <laughs> amazing and so interesting um, and brought so much to it. So thank, it's been absolutely wonderful. Thank you, Caroline and Spencer, for coming on today. Thank you. Thank you. Um, no problem. It's it nice really to chat about these it's things. A fascinating period and fascinating and wonderful book. I do recommend everybody get um, Margaret Elphinstone's *The Gathering Night*. Uh, there will be the details of the book underneath this podcast, so that you can go and find it. Um, there will also be the contact details for my guests. I will say that you can find Caroline Wickham Jones on metalithic.co.uk which is very handy and easy yep. to remember um, <laughs> uh, web address thank you website and but spencer has a good website too so i've got i got the professional face and i've you got do. the timevista.co.uk but also on mike microburin is it microburin.co.uk microburin.com and of course on uh spencer's also on twitter and you can find him there at microburin i can't say that it's really hard to say (laughs) i have i clearly haven't been around lithics too much um so um (laughs) keep tuned for a podcast about the white whitestone stories where i'm hoping to talk to the author himself john barrett and brian wilkinson um who were both who um helped him with that book um i am also going to record a poetry special with gavin mcgregor of the heritage landscape creativity blog he's an archaeologist and poet i absolutely love his blog posts which are always so lyrical um but also with the um Canals and Waterways poet laureate uh, for the UK, Joe Bell, who recently wrote a poem about Doggerland, actually, um, and its disappearance. Uh, so look, tune in for those podcasts. In the meantime, look back over my list of podcasts from before, talking about Clan of the Cave Bear and the Wolf Brother and all sorts of different uh, stories. And, of course, on the Archaeology Podcast Network, there are so many podcasts uh, with some fabulous uh, guests talking about archaeology across the world. So plenty to listen into. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.